Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. This is Setting the Record Straight with Chuck Coughlin on BreadBoxMedia.com. Bringing back dads. My gosh, did we need to bring back dads. The pathological effects of this are everywhere. Of our dishonoring of dads, of our removal from their place in the family and substituting it with the government, the patriarchal government. The way we're conducting our society has meant that the government has replaced fathers in the home. The patriarch is the government, a patriarchal government. So that we often think of a woman and children as a family, but that's not a family. A family is a mother and father and children. What's happened to our men? What is wrong with our men that they're not fathering? They're not being fathers. When someone goes into the prisons and talks to the people there, talks to the felons. They're mainly male. What do they say about their fathers? That none of the felons grew up with a father. I have friends that work in prisons and they say that none of them even know who their father is. It's a rare thing when one of them knows who this father is. We're enduring mass shootings in this country. Practically all of the mass shooters have no father. They did have a biological father somewhere What's happened to our men? Why have they gone wrong? Or did we wrong them? Let's talk about that. You know, I've worked in a number of jails in administrative roles. And what did I discover there? I'm talking about county jails. Well, that every night there were a surprisingly large number of working men of all races who were in jail for a number of days perhaps 60 days, because they'd failed to pay their child support. Now, this could be for various reasons, for good reasons, for bad reasons, and every variation upon that. But frequently, if they had continuing jobs, the jobs were lost now. That solved the problem, didn't it? It's a modern version of the debtor's prison. In many cases, these men have partial custody of their children, yet the ex-wife makes sure that they never get to see them. And they're frequently denied it for all sorts of reasons, good and bad. I didn't find any women in jail anywhere because they denied a father time with his children. But it happens a lot. It happens a lot. It's a well-known fact in our courts. It's still true that women are heavily favored in assigning custody of children. Fathers being seen as unnecessary. What happened to our men? Why do we have all these non-performing fathers and these children needing fathers? The modern father is totally misunderstood. He often just seen as a provider of sorts. If he has a job, he might be gone 12 hours a day, maybe even six days a week. Yet the presence of a father is as vital as that of the woman. 
the very perceptible and true value of a father being present in the life of the child has been ignored by society itself. There's a lot of deep research into this subject lately. It's throwing over old concepts. It's time someone said, hey, wait a minute, let's set the record straight on what it is that fathers do for children. Because fathers may be the most important foundation upon which a child depends to become a moral and healthy member of society. There's been a great deal of research, in-depth research, in an attempt to be objective and set aside the bias against men that is prevalent in our society today. Some of this has been informed by studies of the higher mammals. I'm going to refer to some behavioral studies of elephants, of elephant herds and families, and also that of wolves. I bet you'd be surprised at the role of males in those groups to correct some popular misimpressions about males, because they do apply to human males. Stick with me a bit on this. You'll see what I mean. You know, I have some male friends at the stone quarry in my community. And occasionally I drop in if it's raining and they don't have much business. And just a group of men, there are no women around. And we have the old version of the male hunting group. We'd go off and men talk a lot. Not about things that women talk about. To generalize, women talk a lot about people, especially men. Men talk a lot about things and processes and how processes and organizations work, whether it's politics or sports or military logistics, and very occasionally and very protectively about women. So there's a small overlap of subject matter between the all-female and the all-male group. There used to be men-only bars and when I had a paper out. I used to love to listen to the talk of men there. Way over 99% of the time, there was nothing objectionable said. No cursing, nothing. But when a woman is present, she was treated with respect. Had any man insulted her, every other man in the room would have defended her. Men defend women. Against other men, whether they're right or wrong, they defend them. Always. But things almost always went well, and the conversation accommodated her. But let's return to the stone quarry, to the little office, with a tin roof on a rainy day. One of the better educated men was, has been saying recently that the wolf packs are matriarchal, run by an alpha female, and that elephant herds are also matriarchal, run by a female. Try researching this subject on the internet, and you can see where he got his information. I've been aware of for a long time that that's disinformation. Well, this is an interesting subject, which I know a little bit about, and one of my best friends knows a lot about since he's worked in this area. And the studies, the way they've been written, reflect an unconscious anti-male, anti-father bias. I mean the scientific studies do. There was a lot of sensitive fathering going on before the eyes of these researchers, and they couldn't even see it because they didn't believe it was there. For example, let's take elephants. The book that says the Bible in this area is Among the Elephants, written by Ian Douglas Hamilton, who was a great friend of a great friend of mine who worked with him out there studying the elephants. The elephant group he studied was run by Bodicea, an enormous female. And with her were 
her male children, her prepubescent male children, and all the females, her children. Douglas Hamilton reported that the males had gone off after puberty and lived either solitary lives or in small groups. He referred to the group of females as a herd, and young males, when they reached puberty, were driven out of the herd. At least that's what they thought they observed. We have genetic studies now, and we see that there's something very different going on. That group of females, which may run 6 to 10, maybe 12 sometimes, are all related. There's the lead female and her sisters and her children. It's a family, not really a herd. There is a female in charge of the group, but it's a family group. And the young males are not driven out. They wander off on their own. What Douglas Hamilton observed was those young males trying to weasel their way into other groups of females and not being allowed in and being chased off. Not by their mother, but by a strange female keeping him away from her daughters and sisters. What about the males? Well, here's the big surprise. I noticed right away that the males were in groups of about seven, say. That's an overlap on the herd. Is that a herd? The animal behavioral scientists refer to it as often as a pod, but it was as much a herd as the female group. Basically, it's quite a complex and wonderful society of males. That's never been studied thoroughly, and not even now really thoroughly studied. And it's run by a big old male, often 50 years old. And the people that study these animals are now admitting that they didn't study these groups because these big males are so dangerous, you get your Land Rover smashed like a soup can if you approached anywhere near enough to even see them. So they figured it was just a bunch of roughneck males. But then they began to see that something very tender and nurturing was going on in that group. You might call it fathering. If you want to allow me to use a word like that, to apply to such a huge creature who could wreck anything. That male-dominated group of fathering and nurturing has many parallels in human behavior. Think of the human puberty rite, same thing. Males go off together, and the young male becomes an adult, gently and gradually, and he has a place of honor even on his first day in the group. And the discoveries are quite amazing at the elaborate and sensitive nature of what goes on in these groups. So, we have two groups of elephants. One run by a big female, and her sisters and children, and then a group of males who may be somewhat related, but not necessarily, but bond extensively. And there's a lot of fathering going on in these male groups, quite beautiful fathering. A scientist named Cynthia Moss has been studying elephants in Amberseli, Kenya. She said it was already very clear from the work of Ian Douglas Hamilton that males and females live very different lives. Cynthia was studying the matriarchal societies, but she also wanted to get a handle on what the males were doing. She brought in a scientist named Joyce Poole to study the bull elephants. 
They knew that male Asian elephants regularly entered a state called must, M-U-S-T-H, in which their urge to mate goes into overdrive. Their testosterone level goes way up and they become very aggressive, like rutting deer. But this wasn't even thought to happen in African elephants. So when males would occasionally appear in their study with dribbling penises and exuding a strong smell, at first Moss thought it was an illness. Poole termed it the green penis disease. Disease. But then she saw some photographs of musk in Asian elephants. She conjectured that the African elephant must be experiencing periodic must. During must, males are flooded with up to ten times as much testosterone as usual. They can become extremely aggressive and discharge an almost continuous dribble of urine that creates a scent trail as they walk. Must is a form of honest advertising of a male elephant's sexual availability condition. To a female, a must bull is saying, I'm in very good condition, I've lived long enough, and I can give you a healthy calf that's going to inherit my good genes, virility, and longevity. To other bull elephants, must is advertising, I'm in very good shape, I'm surging with aggressive hormones. If you challenge me, I'll kill you. Sometimes they do fight to the death. Six tons of elephant coming at each other like that is totally terrifying, reported Moss. But an interesting fact is when the bull elephant in Must approaches the female, he waits until she agrees to mate. He does not force himself on her. So what's going on here? This ferocious creature has restraint. That's a little more subtlety than we've been attributing to male elephants. They experience their first mush at about 30 years of age. It can last for months. Males do leave their birth family at an average age of 14. But Poole found they don't leave family life altogether. Instead, they might move off and join another family or move from family to family. Until about the age of 25, they spend 80% of their time with family groups. Until the age of 25, they live in families. But from a younger age, male elephants gravitate toward other males. They like to hang out with other males in the family to roughhouse. And then as they get older, they play fight, sparring together. This is one of the most important activities of human fathers, is play fighting. It's a safe way to learn to fight and defend oneself without hurting anybody. As different families intermingle, males find other males to roughhouse and play with to get to know other young males of their age group. As they play, they begin to understand their own strength, build self-knowledge, and learn the tactics they will need to use as older males. Poole once watched a six-month-old male, six months, a little baby, looking up at a 30-year-old who was sampling a puddle of urine left behind by a female. The older male was finding out if the female was fertile by bringing his urine dip drum back to the roof of his mouth. There, the specialized Vollmer nasal organ could analyze the key chemical messages. This little male staring at the big bull and reaching up and sniffing him, and finally, the baby reaches out and touches the puddle of urine. So from an early age, they're watching older males and modeling themselves on them. At the waterhole, elephant males have a surprising repertoire of friendly or affiliative behaviors. It's like bonded males in a bar. It's like backslapping. Friendly males will take their trunks 
and put them over each other's head, intertwine their trunks, put their ear over another male's rear or head, and use any way they can to touch each other. Now catch this. Males are more touchy-feely than the females are during family visits to the waterhole. Females are more business-oriented, she says. They get in there, drink, protect the little ones, and get out. Male elephants spend plenty of time hanging out. It seems clear that young males are learning from their elders. So when poachers target the largest and older males, it doesn't just shrink the population, but it means the loss of an old tusker's influence on the next generation. One of Poole's favorite male interaction happens when older bulls play fight with younger males. When one of these huge old males wants to play fight with a younger male, they'll often get down on their knees and a great example of elephant understanding and empathy. The big bull down in his knees has brought his face and trunk down on a level with the little elephant. The little elephant can slap the face of the bull with his trunk and not get in any trouble, who will slap back gently, just enough so that the little male will have the experience of fighting, of play fighting. If a six-ton male elephant can have empathy and get down on his knees to play with the youngsters, perhaps it's time to give it a little more credit to the nuanced relationship of these occasionally fierce, but most often friendly and expertly fathering giants. In another study in Kruger National Park in South Africa, the elephant population increased the extent that they wanted to take a group of elephants and relocate them to areas where there were no elephants. And they used harnesses for airlifting. And they could only accommodate the females and the young. The supersized bull males were too big for the harnesses. So the father elephants were left behind. Something peculiar happened to the young male elephants in their new home. Without their father's presence, they began display very unelephant-like behavior, terrorizing other animals, even goring rhinos to death. The calming influence of the female elephants had very little benefit to the young males. They needed role models to teach them how male elephants were supposed to act. Without those father figures nearby, the hormonal young males let gang-like relationships rule the community. So the park officials in Pilanesburg National Park in South Africa, made the wise decision to go ahead and get a supersized harness and relocate the fathers with the herd. It didn't take long. In a matter of just weeks, the young bulls reformed. They were straightened out. The ancient balance was restored among the elephants in the park. The fathers provided the guidance the young needed to become what they were meant to be. Adult male bull elephants with all the complexity, with a mix of fierceness, unnecessary fierceness, and a tenderness, unnecessary tenderness, a mix of passion and restraint, and even intelligence. I hope you appreciate the connection that I'm making with the natural processes of fathering. We'll move on later to humans with the natural processes, modified by the fall of Adam and the redemption by Jesus Christ. Now for the truth about the wolf pack that is assumed to be matriarchal under an alpha female. 
A quite politically correct idea, is it not? And the idea of the lone wolf, which is exotic, strange, and hardly exists. Wolf packs are not packs at all. They're families. It's run by two individuals, an alpha female and an alpha male. The female disciplines the females in the wolf pack. The male disciplines the males in the wolf pack. But it's not a pact at all. It's a family. The only ones that reproduce, the only wolves that reproduce are the alpha female and the alpha male. And all other individuals in the pack are their progeny. So where did this myth about an alpha female running a matriarchal pack come from? Well, from sentiment, actually. It's like the wonderful historian Christopher Dawson examines the myth that there are matriarchal human societies of the past. Such things never existed, yet we want them to, because men treasure women. And the idea of bringing women into equality is a very good idea, is a very appealing idea to men who love and care for women. For the importance of the human male, let me direct you to Warren Farrell's book, The Boy Crisis. You come away from that book realizing there's real statistical basis for thinking that the father is the most important element in the family, leading to the raising of a healthy and moral child who's productive. It's rather surprising. In this podcast, I'm going to touch lightly on a few discoveries that reveal how really important men are in the family. Indispensable. Historically, traditionally, biologically, and rationally, a family is made up of a man, a woman, and their children. With the goal of forming a stable, reliable, lasting, monogamous relationship, the radical left works to destroy this with their embrace of sexually irresponsible conduct. That results in illegitimacy with multiple partners and homosexuals adopting and homosexuals adopting and becoming a family of family, unquote. This conduct is not conducive to a stable society. It is, however, conducive to destroying the foundational structure of American cultural thinking. What is that structure? Judeo-Christian principles. Think back a while. 1963. President Johnson launched a war on poverty. At that time, there were illegitimate children. 7%. 1963. Daniel Moynihan, U.S. Senator from New York, warned the nation of the calamities associated with the growing number of -of out-of-wedlock births. For more than 40 years, our society has ignored Senator Moynihan's warnings. Despite the transparently obvious results of social problems, drugs among the poor and middle class, and disintegration of the family. The liberal intelligentsia has watched the steady collapse of marriage in low-income communities with silent indifference. Well, not exactly indifference. They actually encouraged the downfall by promoting a depraved popular culture that they regarded as recreational, but nothing they would impose upon their own lives, but seduced the innocent among the poor and middle class. As Charles Murray noted in his magnificent book, Coming Apart, the elite intelligentsia, the elite academics, the elite cultural figures have a fairly low rate of illegitimacy 
and a fairly high rate of permanency of marriage. Yet they advocate policies that destroy the middle class. Senator Moynihan came up again when, when George Will wrote about him in 2003. He wrote, Forty years ago, he called attention to the crisis of the African-American family. Twenty-six percent of children were being born out of wedlock. He was denounced as a racist by other liberals. So did it turn out, as Senator Moynihan predicted, actually worse. Today, the percentage among all Americans is 33 percent illegitimacy. Among African-Americans, it's 70 percent. And family disintegration, meaning absent fathers, is recognized as the most powerful predictor of social pathologies. Let's go over those figures again. 1960. Out of wedlock births, 5.3% of total births, including 2.3% of white births and 23% of all black births. Today's illegitimate births are now around 40%, with approximately one out of four among whites. 25% and 70% and 70% of the black community and the Hispanic rate of 48%. But that was in 2005. What's the solution to this growing problem? More public sex education, free condoms, and absolutely no moralizing about their conduct? That's been their solution for decades and the problem grew. This continuing trend in illegitimacy for the last 50 years is, is remarkable. The status left is not content merely to watch marriage die. It's, it seeks to kneel, it seeks to nail a, it seeks, it's trying to, it's trying to nail a coffin shut. It's trying to nail the coffin lid shut. The left is always at the front of the line to point out any minor misstep in their demands for perfection. But their claim of being able to deliver utopian freedom has always been a lie. What they deliver is dystopia. This nailing the coffin shut language, is that a bit extreme? Well, New York Times had a report recently written by Katie Reife, R-O-I-P-H-E. She reported that 53% of babies delivered to women under 30, the prime motherhood demographic, enter the world without their parents married to one another. This should seem startling to most, but they point out at the New York Times things are seen a bit differently as they go on to say this. Marriage is rapidly becoming only one way to raise children, Rofi explains, noting that other countries are obviously way ahead of the United States in incorporating a rational recognition of the vicissitudes of love and the varieties of family life into cultural attitudes toward unmarried parents. Perhaps Katie Rife's personal life is influencing her objectivity in this matter, which flies against all good sense and the statistical disintegration that's so obvious. Katie Rife decided to bring two children into the world, fathered by different men, neither of whom remains in a relationship with a writer. I'm sure that many people attending church services in the last few years have had their minister priest draw on a certain study, a very famous study now, about the transmission of religious practices throughout the family. I'm pretty sure most of you have heard of these findings. 
So let me give you the conclusion before I explain a few of the details. It is the religious practice of the father of the family that above all determines the future attendance at or absence from church of the children. Now the real name of the study is The Demographic Characteristics of Linguistic and Religious Groups in Switzerland by Werner Hogg and Philippe Weiner of the Federal Statistical Office in Neuchâtel. Now if you don't think that's a page turner, when you hear the results, you may change your mind. Basically, there are these results. One, if both father and mother attend regularly, 33% of the children will end up as regular churchgoers, and 41% will end up attending irregularly. Only a quarter of their children, only one-fourth, will end up not practicing at all if both father and mother attend regularly. This is Switzerland, and this is occurring in an age when the outer culture is pouring into every young person's mind through music, all the media, making them secularists, especially in the public schools. The public schools whose core curriculum, which is highly specified in great detail, to slander the Catholic Church, to tell a lot of false history about the Catholic Church. For instance, they completely misrepresent the whole Galileo affair. The detailed core curriculum used nationally imposed by the Department of Education, states this at the end of their discussion of the Crusades. This sentence, the Crusades were bad. So despite this disinformation, children can be rescued and their souls saved if the father steps in, elbows aside this government that wants to replace fathers with government, wants to provide food, medicine, information, spiritual direction. Push the government aside if you can. The foundational place of honor in the family is the father's. It is natural and good that he become the spiritual leader of his family, as Christ intended. Take a look at the core curriculum. What you will find is that they have a mainly secular stance and don't miss a chance to ridicule the Catholic Church. This is our public school's Well, enough of that. Let's get back to the results of our study. Next. Second, if the father is a regular and the mother regular, only 3% of the children will become regulars themselves, while further 59% will become irregulars. 38% will be lost. Three, if the father is non-practicing and the mother regular, only 2% of the children become regular worshipers, and 37% will attend irregularly. Over 60% of their children will be completely lost to the church. That's a non-practicing father and a regular mother. But what happens if the father is regular and the mother irregular or non-practicing? Amazing result. The percentage of children becoming regular goes up from 33% to 38% with the irregular mother and up to 44% with the non-practicing mother. This suggests that the loyalty to the father's commitment grows in response to the mother's laxity or indifference to religion. In summary, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions are, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If the father goes regularly, regardless of whether the mother practices or does not, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become church scores, regular and irregular. One of the reasons suggested for this distinction 
children tend to take their cues about domestic life from mom, while their conceptions of the world outside comes from dad. If dad takes faith in God seriously, then the message to their children is that God should be taken seriously. This confirms the biblical role of father as spiritual leader. It might be said to be true fatherhood. Fathers are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, modeling the love of the father in the most important earthly relationships. It is the father who is essential for sending his children forth with a biblical view of reality and a faith in Jesus Christ that is rooted in a solid understanding. There's much more to say on this subject, so there will be a second podcast next week about dance. On Bedbox Media, this is Chuck Coughlin, setting the record straight. This is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.